This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You're listening to the Fish Untamed podcast, your home for fly fishing in the backcountry. Welcome to episode number 39 of the Fish Untamed podcast. Today is a quick one right before the holidays. I sat down with Alex Ermatinger to talk about his seasons guiding on the Gunnison River in the Black Canyon and also back in Michigan for Chinook salmon. So we can go ahead and hop right in. Here is my chat with Alex Ermatinger. Yeah, so we just met a couple hours ago. Yeah. And so you guys are on your way out to an antelope hunt right now. Yep. And did you recently get back from Michigan? Yep. I was in Michigan for the month of September. Okay. Yep. So fill me in on what you what your kind of season transition consists consists of throughout the year. Yeah. So uh, end of May, June, July, and August, I'm in the Black Canyon on the Gunnison River. Um, I'm working for Gunnison River Expeditions. I'm doing a lot of three-day trips through the Black Canyon. Um, those are really awesome special trips um in september and august i travel back to michigan where i have my own little business venture tinger guide service um where i guide um inland rivers for the migratory chinook or king salmon there so that's that season is about a month long so i'm there for september and then in october i'm back to the gunnison river um where i spend the beginning of october uh still guiding still hitting the end of like the caddis hatches and some of those dry fly hatches and then head over to Nebraska where I do the big game thing. Okay. So is Tinger Guide Service um, something that you're only doing for 
a portion of the year. You also work for a separate outfitter. Correct. Yeah, and the reason that it's only for September is because that's when the king salmon migrate into the rivers to spawn. So we're targeting them in the rivers with eight weight fly rods, and then that's the only time of the river there, or the only time of the year that they are there is during the month of September. So they leave and we leave. Now, does that match up with? So I know like next to nothing about salmon fishing. I've never. Yep. I, I've fished for kokanee. I think once or twice in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, does that line up with uh, how the salmon run on the West Coast as well, or is it kind of a completely separate season? Um, you know, I, I think it's pretty similar. I think it's it's more of a fall run, so there, there's okay. a fall run of fish over in the Pacific side. Um, I think that I think that it, it probably correlates pretty evenly. Okay. Though, yeah. so are you? Um, I assume you're guiding clients who like want to keep and keep their salmon, take them home and mm-hmm. eat them. Yep. Okay. How are you targeting them? So it's we're targeting them with a fly rod. Um, a lot of times we're using a method called chuck and duck. So we're we're putting actual split shot on our fly rigs. Um, we're fishing maybe 8 to 10 to 12 foot holes. So we're getting short drifts in, <coughs> um, getting those flies all the way to the bottom of those runs, um, feeling the bottom, and feeling those fish and setting the hook when we feel the fish. So um, it's kind of a, a, a deep uh, nymphing method. Now, are they actually eating? Um, you know, we're hooking probably 75% of our fish are hooked in the mouth. You'll catch the occasional, uh, fish that's hooked in the tail or, or the dorsal fin, something like that. Um, you know, when you get concentrations of a hundred fish in one hole, you know, you're getting your drift in there and you're feeling, you're feeling something hit your line and you're setting the hook and you know, you're hoping that that fish is hooked in the mouth and it, it usually is, but sometimes. Cause I think there's a couple like salmon seasons where it's like good luck getting one to even look at your fly. Like the whole point is just to go out. And basically right. snag them to bring them in to, to eat. Right. And in Colorado, you can legally snag fish. In Michigan, you cannot legally snag fish. Oh, really? So okay. So unless you hook it in the mouth um, and legally catch that fish, we can't keep it anyways. So it's no good to us. So we're really looking for those few fish in a hole that are okay. are going to be aggressive enough to eat that fly. So you also get some, like, basically hooked in the butt, but you just have to release those. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, at the end of the day, a 20-pound salmon on the end of a fly ride is a hell of a fight. And we, we love to enjoy it. But uh, those fish go back to, uh, you know, live another day. I feel like foul-hooked fish usually fight harder than oh, fair-hooked fish. And so, you know, when I get one or when a friend gets one, it's like, okay, sure, that doesn't, you know, quote-unquote count. But it's probably more impressive that you landed that than if you landed one oh, hooked in the absolutely. mouth because they're so hard to get in. They pull the wrong way. But, um, I agree. So is the is the big game hunting with the same outfitter that uh, you work for in the summer as well, or is that two different? No, nope, this is actually with Heartland Pride Outfitters um, over in Nebraska. Uh, they lease about 60,000 acres of farmland. Um, over there, some some absolutely amazing hunting land. Uh, there's mule deer, white-tailed deer, elk, uh, bighorn sheep, which they do not hunt for, um, but you'll see. Uh, antelope. Um, so they've got pretty much every every big game species almost over there. Okay, and I assume you're coming back to Colorado for some of those species, like bighorn sheep and stuff. You'll guide out of Nebraska into Colorado, or uh, nope, it's actually all in Nebraska. They have bighorn sheep in Nebraska. Yeah, I did not know that. Yeah, they do. <laughs> do it's... they have mountains? <laughs> So uh, Scott's Bluff is where I okay. I work out of, and so Bluff it's it's big bluffs. So they're you know a couple hundred foot bluffs. So there are bighorn wow, sheep. Wow, I there. never knew that. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I think we saw some in South Dakota, which is kind of like similar. So there landscape. are two bighorn sheep permits that are drawn for, or two permits given out each year in the state of Nebraska. One of them is a draw for residents, which is just about the same odds as winning the lottery. The second one is an auctioned off tag and it went for like I want to say $150,000 last year. Now, is it is it like if you get the tag pretty easy to get one or is it still like getting the tag is just the 
start of the challenge? You know, I, I, I guess I don't know a whole lot about it. I know that driving from the lodge hunting every day, we usually saw the same 40 to 50 bighorn sheep every day off the side of the road. Okay. So where I was, there was <laughs> they were prevalent. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of them. There's some huge ones. So it was awesome to see. Okay. So back to the Gunnison. Um, tell me, actually, no, before we go back to that, I want to ask you about the alewives that you were telling yep. us about in the kitchen. Yep. Um, can you just go over again what the like alewife salmon situation is over there? Yeah. So, um, you know, someone's probably going to call me out and, and say I'm misrepresenting the dates here. But I want to say in the 50s, 60s, um, the alewife was a introduced exotic bait fish that was introduced in the bilges of barges in the Great Lakes. Uh, the alewives didn't really have any natural uh, enemies, natural predators in the Great Lakes, Lake Michigan specifically. So they started to go crazy uh, in population size on the 80s, 70s, 80s, uh, there was huge die-offs. So in the beaches um, around Lake Michigan, uh, there's huge die-offs of alewives. So it was killing the tourist economy. Uh, the beaches were smelling like rotten fish, so people didn't want to come enjoy the beaches. So the Department of Natural Resources genetically modified the king salmon, which was a saltwater species from Alaska. Uh, they modified it to be a freshwater species, um, introduced it into the Great Lakes to eat the alewives, and it, it did its job. They did their job. And... Uh, the alewife population is not out of control like it used to be, so they've recently kind of started to dwindle down the stocking of the king salmon, which, if you're in my line of work, isn't a great thing, but, um, you know, it is what it is. Do you, I don't know if you'll know this, but do you happen to know why they picked, like, a West Coast salmon? So, there's also a lake, there's a native lake trout population in the Great Lakes, um, it's funny, not being in Colorado, they call it the Mackinac Lake Trout in Colorado. The Mackinac Island is a, an island in, in the Great Lakes. So uh, there's lots of lake trout. Uh, lake trout are a bottom-dwelling fish. Steelhead in the Great Lakes are a surface-dwelling fish. So you find steelhead when you're fishing for steelhead out in Lake Michigan. You're going to find them in the top 10 feet usually. It's top 20 feet of the water column. The lake trout will be in the bottom 20 feet of the water column. Those alewives are going to be in the middle of the water column. Uh, okay. Out of the way, both of those, where the king salmon Which do live. Which just so happens to be a mid-level fish. Yeah, more of like a, uh, a temperature. There's that uh, temperature fluctuation down there, the thermocline. Um, so more of like a thermocline fish, which okay. tends to be, you know, halfway up or so in the water column. Now, would they, if, I know you said that they're stocking them less and less because it's kind of, I'm sure it's not fully solved, but like kind of problems getting solved. So they're starting to right. kind of phase that out. If they uh, stop stocking them, will they eventually all die out? Or is there any sort of self-sustaining population there that will keep going? <clears throat> so I guide on the Betsy River. The Betsy River is one of the only rivers um, on the Michigan side that has any natural reproduction and it's about 0.01%. Okay. So, so there's almost no. no natural reproduction in those salmon, unfortunately. Um, so they probably will die off. Yep. Do you happen to know why they can't survive as, as they can on the West coast? Um, other than the fact that they're just, that's not their native Ideal. habitat. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they, you know, they're, they're introduced, they're an introduced species sure. to the Great Lakes. So they try, they, they get on that gravel. Uh, those females will get it. We call them reds, you know, the spots in the gravel that they turn white. Um, they clean it off of their bodies. They try as hard as they can to spawn you and see them going through the motions. You, you and see it go through the motions. It's really neat to see. I've heard it. I've heard, I don't know if it's true, but I've heard similar things about certain Alpine lakes out here where you, I mean, I've seen the cutthroat going through their spawning rituals mm -hmm. but then have been told that it's not actually doing anything and i don't know who's 
who's right. I mean, obviously some lakes have self-sustaining populations and others need to be restocked mm-hmm. every so often. But yeah, it makes you wonder which ones are actually successful and which ones are just right. out there fl- messing around and right. <laughs> it's not working. Right. So how'd you get your start with um, the guide service you guide for in the summer? Yeah, so uh, Gunnison River Expeditions, I actually moved out to Colorado uh, about three, four years ago. Um, I started guiding uh, for a dude ranch in the West Elks Wilderness area up in the Rocky Mountains. Um, guests that came to that lodge that wanted to do some more serious fishing, we'd take them down to Gunnison River Expeditions. Uh, so I went down there, I got to know those guys, and I don't know how, but I just started getting introduced as the new guide, so I just went along with just it. Just kept going? Yep. <laughs> And how long have you been with them? Uh, this will be my third year. Okay. Are you yeah. still you still enjoying it? Is it? Oh, I love it. Is it like dream job? It is dream job. <laughs> it's a lot of work, but it's uh, it's a f- it's a great job. Now, are you doing road trips, wade trips, kind of all across the board? Um, so Gunnison River Expeditions is right on the Gunnison River, um, right outside of Hotchkiss, in between Hotchkiss and Delta. So uh, we do in June and July. I do mostly three day. Uh, float trips through the Black Canyon. So the logistics of that trip, um, it's about an hour and a half drive into the Black Canyon. It's a mile and a half hike from the trailhead down into the river. Um, all your gear gets horse packed in, including the rafts and frames and coolers. Um, so it's pretty uh, logistically strenuous to make the trip happen, but uh, it's, a, it's an amazing trip. Um, so that's where I'm, I am most of June and July, um, August and the end of May even, uh, we do a lot of jet boat trips. So from the Gunnison River Expeditions uh, Lodge at the Pleasure Park, uh, we have a jet boat permit for the Gunnison River. So we'll put the drift boats or the rafts on top of the jet boat, take it up four miles to where the Black Canyon ends. Um, drop that off and then bring up the clients and guides and then we'll drift back to the pleasure park okay is that just like a day trip yep for that one okay yep you can make it into a two-day trip there's campgrounds up there but usually it's just a one-day trip now are there campgrounds pretty like well along the canyon i know i know that there's camping in it but um is like most of the canyons campable um so the last from Chucker Trail, kind of down to kind of out of the canyon, uh, there's a, quite a few public camping areas. Uh, the trick there is getting into them. Um, is it I, reservation system or first come, first serve? Um, those, there's a sign-in box at the top, I believe, where you where you park your car, the trailhead. Okay. But it's just like you show up and if no one's there, you can sign your name and go Correct. down in? Yep. Okay. Yep. And what are you like? What are you fishing for? I assume browns and rainbows. Yep, mostly? it's about ninety-five percent brown trout, five percent rainbow trout. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, the Gunnison River is hit by whirling disease um, about fifteen, twenty years ago, so it killed almost all the rainbow trout. So not as many rainbows. They've been trying to restock the population um, recently. They've so there's not as many rainbows, but the rainbows that we do see tend to be eighteen inches or bigger. So some big rainbows, but not quite as many. Any other species you ever come across? Rainbows and browns, pretty That's much. You get the lower river, you get the you know the warm water species. But um, no, we're just looking for those trout. Yeah, yeah. and I I have heard. I think I, I talked to Jay Scott back in. I think he may have been like episode two, and he was talking about the salmon fly hatch there yeah. and how it's just incredible. Absolutely <laughs> unbelievable. Yep. I still have not hit like a big salmon fly hatch. It's usually Ugh. I don't know. It's like that time of year where I'm still getting like I'm still getting myself out for summer, and I just I'm not super right. like tuned into it yet yeah. but you definitely have to be at the right place at the right time and it seems I've like heard that. the yeah. clients that specifically book for the salmon fly hatch never hit the salmon fly hatch i don't know why it just works like that do you get an <laughs> earful where are the salmon flies why aren't like oh yeah why aren't they here the entire month of june that's every every client's first words out of their mouth is about the salmon flies and how they are and where are they and 
it's it's funny but no it's an amazing hatch um standing there on the bank of the river there's just three inch bugs crawling up your neck and your face is pretty pretty special experience if you're a fly fisherman if you're not it's disgusting oh yeah i'm sure I mean, <laughs> no other time could you sell it it's like you get three inch bugs crawling all over you it's great right it's so funny <laughs> i had a trip this past spring and the guy's had his it was 70 degrees out and he had his his parka on with the hood tied around his face because he was creeped out of the bugs and i just kept thinking he's not gonna cut it as no. a fly <laughs> not gonna cut it you gotta get used to certain yeah. uncomfortable things like yeah. bugs on you and that's a good sign yeah yeah so walk me through like what what are the logistics on a three-day float trip mm-hmm. because i feel like you're trying to manage i mean the fishing is obviously priority number one mm-hmm. but you've also got to you know at some point your job mostly becomes keeping people comfortable and happy yeah in situations that they might not normally be so like walk me through the logistics right. of how a trip like that works right so we'll meet at six thirty in the morning at the pleasure park uh we'll get into vans it's about an hour and a half drive in um pretty bumpy ride in uh we'll usually give a safety speech on the ride in um get to the trailhead the clients will have their gear um and most of the rest of the gear is already packed down by the horses but the clients will have their their gear that they're bringing on the trip on their back and they hike the mile and a half down um sometimes that is the most dangerous part of the trip because that's when you can have the trip and falls and the the heat strokes and the stuff like that with people that just aren't used to the elevation that we're at and the heat that we have to deal with so that's usually the most dangerous part of the trip there um past that it's just keeping people hydrated um contrary to popular belief beer does not hydrate you so we have to really stay on them about drinking lots of water um sunburn is another killer um other than that, just, just, you know, keeping them in line so they don't roll ankles and stuff like that. Do you have people who, like, aren't comfortable in the in the rafts? Or do they do they have to do anything in terms of, like, getting down the river? Or are they just along for the ride and people are generally pretty comfortable and doesn't matter if they're yeah, you know, so uneasy in the raft? Yeah, for the three-day fly fishing trips, um, the client just has to sit there and enjoy it. Uh, okay. Usually the clients are going to try to fish as much as they can from the raft as it's moving, which, as you kind of just said it can be uncomfortable um (laughs) you know so it's it's a uh um on a client to client basis as far as how much they fish from the raft uh we'll make bench seats for them out of gear um that they can sit on and and some people like to sit on that and fish some people like to try to stand up and fish um during some of the rapids the guides will call that out um when we're going to get into some trickier water um some clients will stop fishing and some like to keep right on fishing because that's where the biggest fish are found is right in those rapids where no one really fishes for them do you have people who, after a bit, just want to sit and just ride along? Oh, yeah. As I say, I feel like there'd be a lot of people who are like, I fished for a couple hours. I'm mostly here to like drink beer and right. be on the water. One of my favorite stories this past year is a guy that came out and came fishing with his buddies. And they went on a two or three day fishing trip and had a great time, caught a bunch of fish. He came back a couple weeks later with his wife and kids because he, he had such a great time. He wanted to show them. And they did not fish at all. They just had a fun float. And I'll never forget, he told me, he's like, I have never... I, or what did he say? He said, I, uh, I never saw any of this stuff the first time. He's like, the second time I actually got to look up and enjoy it. And this, you know, first time I missed it all sitting there looking at my, my indicator or my dry fly the whole time. Yeah. It's funny. That's one thing I like. I, uh, I noticed, I really noticed it for the first time this past summer, but we were fishing like a, just an Alpine Lake up here. And I, I will almost always opt for a dry fly if I can, obviously, but you got, then you have to watch it so closely and I ended up just stripping nymphs after that because I was like, I can just look around while I do that. You know, right. you're just feeling for the tug. Mm-hmm. And it's like, 
yeah, I wouldn't normally opt for stripping a nymph in a lake when I could watch a rise, but at some point you're kind of sick of just staring at the same spot in the water mm-hmm. over and over again, over and over again. So I I always start start my trips on the water by telling people don't spend the entire day looking down at the water. You are in one of the most beautiful places in the world, so make sure you enjoy it. But yeah, you got to remind the clients to like have fun. Yeah. At the end of the day, all I need you to do here is have fun. I don't I don't you know if you only if you're happy with one fish, we'll get you one fish for sure, but. I don't That's know. my job as a guide is, is finding out what makes those clients tick and what's going to make them have a good day because, you know, some people some people need to catch a lot of fish in order to have a good time, unfortunately. Do you what how how would you break down kind of like the ratio of what people are usually looking for? Because I feel like I, I used to guide a little bit, but it was in much more of like a family setting where mm-hmm. you'd have people who were just there like to have fun and learn. Mm-hmm. But I feel like somewhere, you know, if you're booking a three day trip down the Gunnison, I feel like it's you're probably there to catch fish you yeah, know? yeah yeah they they definitely come in with really high expectations and usually those expectations are met um you know every once in a while they are not met um and usually even then the clients are okay with it um i guess there is the the occasional client who has been upset uh with with the fishing or with the trip or or some aspect of it but i think that's any job you're gonna have have somebody that's for sure that's upset, so. throws a wrench in it yeah i got a call once from a guy who was coming up from texas and he was like i really really want to catch a big fish while i'm there and i was like you're not in the place for it. this is like small stream Right. small Number lake game. <laughs> yeah like this you're gonna catch a lot of you know eight to 12 inch fish mm-hmm. and he's like i really want to catch like a big fish and i was like "Ooh, that's not gonna happen mm-hmm. but have you ever caught a brook trout before and he's like no i was like well that's what we're gonna go catch and you know he was excited about the new species but right. you gotta kind of set the expectations before you go out like look it is a good day if you catch you know 20 fish right. but don't expect something that's right. you know too big but i'm sure you can kind of provide both of those in the mm-hmm. gun, in the gunnison, like yeah. size and numbers. Yeah, there's some awesome fishing. We we usually get into quite a few fish, and even a bad day on the gunnison is is you're still catching fish. You know? So are you just floating from campsite to campsite? I assume. Yeah, on just those on those three day trips, we have on the three day trips especially, we have a whole lot of time to explore the water, and you know we're gonna stop every couple hundred yards, every good riffle, every everything that that you know provides us with some good fishing opportunity. We're gonna stop and hit for a while. Okay. Um, a lot of accessible stuff from the banks at places in the canyon um so we do some walk waiting and, and clients can go out on their own or or go walk waiting with a guide if they choose now do you get much time to fish for yourself over no. the summer are you pretty pretty I, booked up no, every day it's funny people come on and say oh you must fish all the time as a guide no not really no but you still enjoy it you know you're out there and and you're you're with people who are catching in their eyes once in a lifetime fish sure. so it's pretty special so do you do you, um do you have any places like near home that you ever go uh just like on the shoulder seasons or anything like that yeah i mean usually in the winter is my time to go fishing um okay. i usually do some uh, duck hunting on the river some blasting casts in the winter so that's really my time to catch fish and, and some of the best fish that the river produces is in the winter and uh there's nobody else out there which is nice now you fish in the same river yep just back to the same spot i guess you know it so well like yep. you know where they all are that's right it's good have you seen any mo- just like monsters come out on guide trips where you're like oh man i could have been i could have been here to catch this fish you know for every big fish that we land we lose two that are bigger so you see so you, a, see, them you in there. see a lot of big fish in there but it seems like the big ones you know they're few and far between coming to the net what what would you say is the average size i know you said rainbows are, are often around like 18 
What about the browns? It's funny. The average fish. The average fish during the salmon fly hatch is 18, 19 inches. The average fish two weeks later is 12 to 14 inches. Okay, it's a little bit so, smaller than I would have expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they're they're still you know three four pound fish. Yeah, you know a 20, 20 inch rainbow is a chunky fish. I mean, mo- I feel like most places in Colorado, 10 to 12 is kind of average or mm-hmm. or on the larger side so yeah. if that's if that's on the average to smaller side then yeah. that's not a bad bad setup yeah we're spoiled so i i usually start off with this but we kind of just dove right in but how did you get your start in the outdoors like did you grow up hunting mm-hmm. and fishing do you have a mentor or? yeah my dad really got me into it okay well, my dad got me into hunting and fishing and got me a passion for that and um, we have a family farm uh, in central lower peninsula so i spent a lot of time there as a kid just exploring the outdoors and nature and uh, ended up going to college for environmental science and biology. Um, I worked a couple more professional jobs after college and started guiding in my free time and on my weekends uh, using some of my paid time off um, and then finally decided that I was not happy doing that and I would be happy or a lot happier guiding. So I made that transition and I've never looked back and I've never been happier. So Fair enough. Yep. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people are in the same boat. Yeah. If anybody's on the verge, I'd recommend it. <laughs> well, would you recommend going to college and then doing it or just going straight for it? You know, for me, going to college first worked well. And I guess it gives me a fallback in case I need to find another real job. Um, Which it doesn't sound like is needed right now. Not with right the now. numbers of people. Yeah, it's it's going well. Everything's going well, and there's a lot of people that want to get out fishing, fortunately. Yeah, did you notice an like an actual increase in the number, or was it just that you were you know still consistently busy? Like, were there people like more people booking trips farther in advance, stuff like that? Unfortunately, or fortunately, we saw a increase in people that were coming fishing. Now, did you actually have like the room for that? Like, are you usually not fully booked out, but this year you were, or? Were you, like, turning people away? So if we're talking Gunnison River Expeditions, um, Gunnison River Expeditions has, you know, X number of guides who, you know, usually don't work every day, all of them, whereas this year that was, you know, more than not the case. Everyone's booked up. Yeah, everyone's working every day. So, which from a guide's perspective is good, you know. It was a great year for us. Now, is there also a fly shop associated with the outfitter? There is, yep. Uh, Gunnison River Expeditions works out of the Pleasure Park. Um, it's a Hotchkiss address. It's in between Hotchkiss and Delta. Okay. And did you, do you happen to know how, like, fly, like, that fly shop or fly shops in general were affected? You know, I don't know. Um, I've got to imagine that fly shops in general are doing pretty well. I know there seems to be a lot more people out fishing than there has been in years past. Yeah, because at first I've, I feel like people were talking about, like, support your local shop, which, you know, I don't disagree with. But uh, I think they were saying it in kind of a preventative, like, uh-oh, they're about to go through a really hard time. And I'm sure they've had to close their doors for a lot of it, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're kind of making it up by having, like, an online presence, you know. Yeah getting people out in the water uh or or maybe even just being like we can guide you right right i mean i i know um ed's fly shop over in montrose over in the west side the western slope um he just recently moved into a new building so i think uh business is going good for ed um he's a great guy too uh which i, I don't you know don't i don't know why business wouldn't be going well for him but i know ed's doing well so hopefully other fly shops around the area are following suit yeah, I'm hoping that this uh, allows a lot of shops, well, not allows, but maybe kind of forces a lot of shops to have more of an online presence. Because, you know, there's times where I, like, I try to support local when I can, but I don't always have the time to drive across town to whatever fly shop. Um, so if this just encourage more fly shops to, like, 
be like, all right, we just gotta we just gotta get the website set up. Yeah. And <laughs> then I have a feeling a lot of that's going on. So did you notice a difference in the the hunting? You know, I really uh, to tell you the truth, this is my first really experience with the big game stuff, so um, I don't have a whole lot to compare it to. Okay. Um, I've got to imagine it's similar though. There's people that want to get outside and enjoy the outdoors and have a little bit more time off and um, you know want to go enjoy that stuff. So yeah, I think I heard fishing. I don't know if it was hunting or fishing licenses were up like 30,000 in Colorado alone. I think it was hunting licenses, but yeah, that's a lot more people out there on the rivers. I am curious how many are going to still be around next year, but right. we'll see. Or how many people actually even went out to enjoy their hunting licenses or fishing licenses. Yeah, maybe. I mean, a lot of a lot of rods and flies were sold, I'm sure. Yeah. And they might be on Craigslist next that's year, right. so <laughs> we got to keep an eye out. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so, um, what like, are you, you said you just got back from Michigan are you transitioning over into just your, like your winter stuff now at this point? Yep, yep. I'll be doing some stuff with Gunnison River Expeditions. They have some bird hunts that they do in the fall or in the winter, so I'll be doing some stuff with them. But uh, upland and, and waterfowl, just, or just waterfowl? yeah, yep. Yeah, upland and waterfowl. I do more of the upland stuff for them. Um, but this is also my time of year where I take some time off and enjoy it for myself. So okay, don't do a whole lot in the winters, but uh, I'm affiliated with that. Is the upland? Do you have a lot of upland hunting out? On just on the western slope, is that yeah? So, uh, Gunnison River Expeditions leases like 2,000 acres of land on Scenic Mesa over there. Um, it's just awesome upland cover, and they have pen raised pheasants and chucker um, that they have clients come out and hunt. Um, so, it's it's just beautiful area, beautiful country, um, tons of country. Yeah, I don't, th- I always think about like the eastern, eastern plains in Nebraska when I'm thinking of like upland and. I always forget about the Western Slope. Yeah, we've got some good mm-hmm. stuff over there. Speaking of upland, do you do any fly tying? I do, yep. Are you tying most of the flies that you're using on the guided trips? Uh, so for Michigan, I'm tying all my own flies. Uh, a lot of those are simpler flies, too. A lot of egg patterns, um, woolly buggers, egg-sucking leeches, stuff like that. Um, in Colorado, it seems that um, I tie a lot of my own bugs, um, but there's still some that... I can't even tie for what I can buy them for. So I just end up buying buying some of them. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people get into fly tying to save money. And I feel like for certain patterns, it makes sense. Like, yeah. I, I don't do a ton of tying it, but like, mm-hmm. I'll tie all my own midges. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to pay two bucks for right. black thread on a hook. But there's a couple where I'm like, I don't know if I'll ever get to the point of tying this myself. Yeah, there's some um, that have 20 different, you know, ingredients per se. Um, you know, it, it's that you have to buy all in like hundred fly, you know, yeah. quantities at least. Absolutely. Do you think most streamers are more expensive to tie or buy? Uh, it depends. You can get some of that stuff in bulk. Um, s- from experience, some of the stuff trying to skimp on quality it does affect the fly. In so, in what way? Like quality um, for like which materials? So like um, different chenilles say uh for like bodies of streamers um you know some will hold more water some will sink faster some will be more buoyant um um, stuff like that yeah that's something i'd like to get more into i built my first rod last year though and found that 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 captured my attention more than fly tying have you i've never done that and it's something that i've really wanted to do for a long time so i'll have to pick your brain on that oh i'm not an expert i've got a (laughs) friend who does it um but it was just i don't know i think i liked the staying on one project a little bit longer, which is something that I feel like fly tying, you know, he finished them pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And I liked having a project that lasted for, uh, I mean, for me, it lasted a couple of days right. um, to do. So yeah, you have to let me know if you, if you go to build one, because mm-hmm. I, I think I might build another one this, this winter. Yeah. Do you fish um, fiberglass at all? 
Um, I've got a couple fiberglass rods. Um, a couple of my eight weights back in Michigan are fiberglass. How do you find the like heavier weight fiberglass? Like, I feel like most people out here are fishing like two to three weight fiberglass. Um, it's got it's it's a lot more. Um, doesn't have so much backbone, I guess you could say. So okay. you'll feel the bend all the way back to the handle. Um, they're fun rods. Uh, when they break, they break explosively, though. I'm sure. So we, we've kind of got. I'm away sure you. <laughs> it sounds like you've figured that out from experience. Yeah. Care to tell the story? Oh, it just it's always just you know a, a reel that the drag doesn't seem to want to. Okay. Want to go out for some reason, and the we're using you know ten or twelve pound tippet, so that that rod will will explode if that drag doesn't function like it should. Do you have any um, rod breaking stories, just in general, or like clients that have broken rods? I mean. This this year, this year we had a, a fish that you know a lot of times they'll take off and they'll be 200 yards away from the boat in 10 seconds, or in this like this happened and the fish just started jumping, jumping and it was jumping two feet in front of the boat and so the client is you know that rod is just arched way over with the fish jumping in front of the boat, broke the rod, the fish runs right at me with a net still fresh. I net the fish and the fish goes straight through the net breaks through the net and what somehow we like, still landed the fish like it, snapped the netting no it went through the netting yeah, oh through it, the holes it, yeah it, it okay. somehow tore a hole in the holes and got through there and then i got into a wrestling match with that fish on the bank and somehow we landed <laughs> i feel like there's always like i had one i had a client once whose fly line snapped and yeah. you could see it, it was in a lake and you could see this the fly line like swimming around the surface we eventually like grabbed it out of the water as it yeah. swam past but i feel like with when you're fishing with clients you you see so much more stuff happen because because you're, you know, if you're guiding two or three people, that's two or three people's experience is worth that you get to witness. And so you just see a lot more stuff when you're watching a bunch of other people fish. It always seems like they land the the biggest fish are the ones that they should not land. And somehow we, we get it to come together and they land it. What are like the biggest fish you've personally witnessed landed? Um, yeah, this year, uh, one of the biggest fish I think was a 29 pound king and um the second client in the boat started videotaping the battle um you know the fight five or ten minutes into it and i think it was 47 minutes into the video is when we landed the fish oh wow so that was like an hour of hour a dedicated of cameraman <laughs> yeah. i'd be like all right we're gonna wait till this is like closer to the net and, and that fish was 400 yards downstream wrapped under two logs and we should never have landed that fish and somehow it, it stayed it on happened yeah so do uh, the salmon, when they come in, does the quality of their flesh depend on how like long they've been in the system? Yes, it they does. Try not to catch them right before they die, I assume. Right. And so that's also why we I, I will fish for the month of September and then I'll leave the last, you know, last week of September um, is usually when I'm wrapping up my trips. And that's usually when uh, the first the first salmon that came into the river are starting to die. Um, and that's when the river starts to get stinky and, you know that's when I give up. I know there's a few people that will fish the whole month of October. Uh, the quality of fish that I find just deteriorates and then you're not catching as many fish in the mouth. It's more fish that are snagged because they're not eating aggressively or they're not, they're not doing okay. much at all. So does it have more to do with the timing that you're fishing than it does like location and river? Or is it, is it kind of both like if you're fishing farther up the river, have those salmon kind of made it a little bit farther and are petering yeah. out a little bit yeah and so the i've got some private stretches of of river back in michigan which kind of um is special just in that we can float nine or ten miles of river and see three or four people in a day um 
So you're floating there too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I figured those were wade trips. Nope, nope. I've got a drift boat back there, so okay. we'll float, you know, seven, eight, ten miles of river, um, in a day, um, and not see many people. Uh, we are fishing maybe fifteen, twenty miles inland, um, from the lake. So the fish that we're we're seeing have traveled, um, you know, a little ways, but they're still they're still eating. We're still catching. Like I said, a majority of them are are aggressively right in the mouth. Okay. Do you have any, I know you said the fish all kind of die off just like I would expect they do in, you know, Alaska or wherever mm-hmm. else. Do you have some sort of influx of animals coming down to the bank to? So it's funny um, because they are such in history wise, they're such a recent species that other species have not really besides the bald eagle is one that does. There's okay. tons of bald eagles all over the river, but like as far as bears, there's bears in the area and I've heard of people seeing a bear every couple of years, but you don't see bears like you do see bears in Alaska. Okay. Bears in Alaska over, you know, generations and generations have learned to eat those salmon, whereas it's only the salmon have only been in Michigan for 40 or 50 years. So they just haven't really picked it up yet. <laughs> I'm surprised. I feel like a, a bear would still, I mean, I feel like they're pretty opportunistic. I'm surprised they wouldn't have pick, picked I up on that. <laughs> I, I want to see them. I, I would like love to see them. I em. could leave a dead fish out in the woods and a bear, I feel like, would come right. up and take it. would be like, well, I don't know. I've never seen this before. Right. This doesn't look like the trash can I raided last week. <laughs> right. Know? And then come back the next year and the next year and the next year. But I don't know. They just, for some reason, you don't see them. Now, do, I don't know if you'll know, because I don't know if you've mentioned it, but the kokanee's here. Do you know if we have a similar die-off like that? Like, I, I never hear about some sort of, like, massive salmon die-off. So Colorado every year. Um, what makes a salmon a salmon is that they live their life and then they spawn and then they die. So a steelhead is a trout, right? And that it will spawn numerous times, times every year. But every time a salmon spawns, it will die. So like those kokanees, they do. They run up the river every, I think it's two years, they live in the lake. And then they'll run up the river and they'll spawn and they'll die. Okay. I guess I have, just haven't heard of anyone talking about like, like october november when that happens and so you just it's frozen and people aren't there it's not a stinky yeah. hot mess yeah. okay yeah <laughs> that probably helps i feel like if if colorado's rivers every summer were just choked with dead fish i feel like there might be a drop in tourism yeah. and <laughs> people not coming people not coming out right so what's what's um on your plate for the next couple months then you're just taking a couple a little bit of time off and then fishing for fun for yeah. a little bit yeah until i'll be antelope hunting here for a couple days um and then I'll be heading to Nebraska. I'll be guiding for Heartland Pride Outfitters again for their muzzleloader season, their mule deer season out there, um, which will be 14 days long, I believe. Uh, and then I'll be coming back to Colorado here to enjoy the rest of my winter. Sweet. Well, I might have to hit you up for a gunnison trip this year because I've uh, I fished the um, the Lake Fork a couple times, and I fished the actual Gunnison River. I want to say like once or twice, but not in the canyon. Um, I guess that's that would be maybe my last question is like how different is the canyon section from the rest of that river? Like if you were to fish it up closer to Gunnison itself. Um, so it's kind of what you think of when you think of canyon. It's going to be walls on both sides for the most part. Um, you've got Ute Park in the middle um, of the canyon that we float that's a little bit more open. Um, but for the most part, above and below Ute Park is pretty much canyon walls on both sides. Um, so really to float it is going to be the best way to access that entire stretch. Okay. And and as far as like fishing techniques, is it pretty similar hatches and... Yep. Fly selection? Okay. Yep. You get that huge salmon fly hatch. Before the salmon fly hatch, you're fishing uh, just the stone fly nymph, so the salmon fly nymph variation, which is just going to be a Pat's rubber leg. Um, and they're just inhaling that. I think there's one study that said 75% of a fish, some of those fish's diet in the canyon is the salmon flies. So three During that time? 
through the or entire through the year, for their entire year, seventy five percent of the protein <laughs> is the salmon fly hatch. So That's they're crazy. just you're catching these fish that are just throwing up salmon fly bugs and it's just ridiculous so before the salmon fly hatch you're fishing with those pats rubber legs um you're fishing dry flies all salmon fly hatch and then after the salmon fly hatch uh you still have like golden stones there's yellow sallies um stuff like that yeah i'll have to let you know if we end up that way because yeah. we've we've been wanting to i mean we've been to the black canyon but we haven't we haven't fished it yet mm-hmm. and it's been on my list yeah. so I'll have it's to a really special up. place about eight thousand trout per mile in there is that I assume that's gold water or gold medal yep. status? Okay, absolutely. Well, um, I guess before we go, do you just want to go over any of your handles, email, anywhere people can reach you if they want to book yeah. a trip? Yeah. So in Michigan, uh, I run Tinger Guide Service, uh, T I N G E R Guide Service. Um, I'll be available to take bookings for next September. And then back in Colorado, here I work for Gunnison River Expeditions on the Gunnison River and Heartland Pride Outfitters over in Nebraska. Perfect. We can head back out there and. Hopefully, uh, fish together this summer, maybe. I appreciate everything. Thank you. All right, and that is all. As always, if you liked what you heard, I'd love for you to go over to Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts and subscribe there. Uh, if you've got a couple extra minutes, a rating or review would also be much appreciated. It doesn't take too long, and it makes a big difference on my end. You can also find all my episodes on fishuntamed.com in addition to fly fishing articles every two weeks. And you can find me on social media under my name, Katie Berger, on Go Wild or at Fish Untamed on Instagram. And I will see you all back here in two weeks. Bye, everyone. Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.